Once upon a time, there was a little boy who loved Power Rangers. In fact, one day uh, when he and his parents were at the store, this little boy saw the newest Power Ranger and he thought to himself, he thought, if only I could have that particular Power Ranger, my life would be fulfilled forever. And so he made his desires known to his parents. And they said to him, they said, no, dear, that particular Power Ranger is outside the bounds of our budget and we can't afford to buy it for you now. But you don't understand, the little boy thought. It's not just the Power Ranger that you would be buying me. You would be buying me happiness. You see, there's this little Power Ranger-shaped vacuum in my soul, and it will only be filled when you buy me this particular Power Ranger. And so the little boy's life motto became, my heart is restless, and it will only find rest in this particular Power Ranger. So he waited a while, and then he explained to his parents, I really need this Power Ranger. My whole life's existence is dependent upon it. And once I get it, there will be no more whining, no more complaining, no more crying, because I will have finally found fulfillment. I will be content for the rest of my life, he said. So his parents bought him the Power Ranger, and guess what? He found contentment. He grew up to be a fulfilled, grateful, and joyful man, even though the rest of his life didn't go so well. He married a woman who left him for his best friend. He lost his job because of that and never really got back on his feet. And when he got old, he went on Social Security and hardly had any money, but he never whined or complained. Instead, he would think, I remember that Power Ranger. What great contentment and joy I found in it. And just as he predicted, it brought him lasting satisfaction. He was content and grateful for the rest of his life. The end. How many of you think that's a true story? Raise your hands. Of course, it's not a true story. And and here's the thing, you know, uh, the Power Rangers, they become video games, and then video games become computers, and then computers become new cars, and then new cars become new houses, and new houses become new club memberships in a never-ending search for fulfillment and contentment. You know what I'm talking about. And it's not just men, by the way, ladies. It's women, too. For every toy that men buy, I could mention one for women, too, but instead, I'll just say one word here. Here, ladies, shoes. And I won't say anything more about shoes because if I do, I might not have a place to go home to this afternoon. So, but you know what I'm talking about. Why is it so hard for us to be content? Why? Now, you might say, well, you know, hey, look, uh, advertising. You know, it certainly is true that our culture is absolutely brilliant at creating dissatisfaction in us. We get messages about this every day. Use me, buy me, wear me, try me, drive me, put me in your hair. We are richer, we're richer, we're healthier, we're better fed, we're better housed, we're better educated than any generation in human history. And yet, we are still discontent. And is that discontentment, is it just is, is it really just because of advertising? Or is there something else at work in our lives that creates this discontentment? And is there any cure for this discontentment? Well, if you, if you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to wrap up the series that we have been in for a long time, like since January. 
uh, called the gospel in the last place you would expect to find it. Maybe it wasn't January. Maybe it just feels like it was January to some of you guys. But we've been in it for a long time. We're going to wrap it up today. And we've been walking through some very key passages in the book of Exodus throughout this series. But there's one passage outside the book of Exodus that I wanted to take you to that is very important, I think, to wrapping up this series. And it's found in Numbers chapter 21. So if you have a Bible, turn to Numbers, the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Near the beginning of the Bible, you get Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers is the fourth book, and then Deuteronomy. Numbers chapter 21. And uh, turn there if you would. And interestingly, this is a story about something that happened during the Exodus, even though it's not found in the book of the Exodus. Okay, It's found in Numbers chapter 21. And let's start reading at verse 4, Numbers chapter 21 and verse 4. The text says that they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people, the people of Israel, grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people. And many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and they said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, I think, I think probably most of us could agree that that's, that's kind of, at least on the surface, that's, that's, that's kind of a weird passage, right? And it might even seem to some of you that the Lord's response to their complaining is kind of disproportionate. I mean, like, okay, they're, they're hungry, they're thirsty, they don't like what's on the menu. Okay, they shouldn't have complained, but seriously, venomous snakes? That seems like really harsh, doesn't it? Although, I mean, I can imagine there might be some moms here in the room that are tired of their kids complaining about the dinners that they make, and you're like, well, no, that seems about right to me. Venomous snakes, yeah, send them on there. In general, though, I do think that most people probably think that this would seem like a disproportionate response to the people's complaining. But if you give me just, I think if you just give me a little bit of latitude here this morning, uh, I think I could show you that to the contrary, there is a remarkable correlation between what the people are saying and what happens to them. I'm sure you're wondering, well, how, how in the world could that be? What do you mean? Well, if you would, look at the complaint again. Look at the complaint. What they're complaining about is this stuff called manna in the desert. And if you've been with us, if you were here with us a few weeks ago, you'll remember that manna... There's no food in the desert, right? So uh, manna was something that God sent every day miraculously to the people of Israel as they journeyed through the desert because there was no food otherwise. And it came down every single day in the midst of the howling wilderness, every single day. So it was a direct, wonderful, miraculous testimony to God's power and his commitment to his people. And at first, of course, when it first came, they were like, oh, man, they were so delighted about it because this was the only way they were going to live. It was what kept them alive, but they had grown over time. Like they had it every morning, every lunch, every snack, every dinner, and every late night snack, they had manna. Now I get it. I mean, I get why they'd be sick of it. Now here's, here's why I, I, I get it, okay? 
I was single till I was 32 years old, which means that for roughly 14 years, it was up to me to figure out what to eat. And I didn't, I didn't care about food. I mean, I found it to be like, it was a necessity, but it was just something I really cared. I, I didn't really care about one way or another. And when, when I got married, my sweet wife voluntarily took over all food-related duties in our home. And she even, get this, get this. Now listen to this. This is what my sweet wife did. You're going to think this is incredibly sweet because I think it's incredibly sweet. Uh, she even sent me to school every day. I was in seminary at the time. I wasn't like a little boy. She, she, I was in seminary. She sent me to school every day and work because I'd go to work after. She would send me every day with a brown bag lunch every day. And inside she put a napkin in it and she wrote something really sweet on it to me every day. Like, I love you or you're sexy or uh, I don't know if she said that or not. I thought that. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, she said something like that. Is that not so cool? Is that not the sweetest thing? Well, let me tell you something. We've been married for 22 and a half years. And she stopped doing that a long time ago. And here's why. Let me tell you why, okay? Like on the first day after we got back from a honeymoon and I had to go to work and stuff, she asked me, she, she, goes, she goes, what would you like in your lunch? And I said, oh, I don't know, a uh, ham sandwich, I think. And she was like, well, what would you like on your ham sandwich? And I said, I don't mustard, I guess. And bless her heart, every day for six months, I got a ham sandwich with mustard on it. I got so sick of ham sandwiches with mustard, I started trading my lunch with other guys at seminary. The love notes inside the brown paper bag, that created some awkward conversations when they got those. But... And then sometimes, if I couldn't find somebody to trade it with, I would just throw it away. I know that's horrible. I know that's horrible. But I did. Finally, one day I told her, I said, babe, uh, I meant, like, when you asked me that day what I wanted, I meant, like, that one day I wanted a ham sandwich. Not every day for the rest of my life. I'm kind of sick of ham sandwiches. And then she asked. She said, well, what have you been doing with your, ham, with your lunches then? And I said, well, I've been trading them or maybe even throwing them away. Now, I can't really repeat what she said next, but I can tell you that that was the moment that she stopped making lunches for me all the time. I get, right? I get, and you probably can too. I get what the Israelites are feeling here. They're like, we've been eating this manna stuff for a long time, every day, every meal, and we're tired of it. Let's broaden the menu some. I don't blame them for saying that. But as you might imagine, there's something more that's going on here. And if you just travel back in your mind, you don't have to turn in the scripture, but if you just travel back in your mind, the beginning of the book of Genesis with me, we're in, let's go back to the very beginning. We're in paradise now, okay? Everything, we're at the beginning of time and everything is perfect. There's no sadness, there's no sickness, there's no death. Everything is perfect. And God says to humanity, you're free to do anything you want, except just one thing, just one thing. You can't, that tree right over there, you cannot eat uh, of that tree. And into the garden slithers, I guess he slithers, I don't know. He slith- his serpent slithers into the garden. And he says to Adam and Eve, he goes, he goes, you know, that is not right. That whole thing about you can't eat from the fruit of that tree, that is, that's really not cool. You, you should be able to eat. Uh, from that tree or any other tree that you want, but you ought to be able to eat from that tree. 
Um, it's probably the best tree, in fact. God's, you know, I bet you what's happening here is that God's probably holding you back from something that's truly great. And so all the other trees, I mean, they're fine, but that one's the one that's really great. Do you see the idea that he's planting? It's discontent. That's what he's planting. There's something more that will make you truly whole. Now, they were, they were as whole as they could be. They were human beings. They were walking in the, in the presence of God. They, everything was perfect. But they're like, there's something more, there's something more, there's something more. Something more that will make us truly whole, truly fulfilled. And you know what happened, right? They ate. But something great did not happen to them. In fact, everything perfect changed. Why? Because in that moment of distrust and discontent, the spiritual venom of the serpent, the snake, passed into their hearts and souls. And ever, and ever since then, every human being, you, me, every human being since has inherited that spiritual venom from Adam and Eve. It's been passed down to you and to me. Okay. Now, out of that incident, here's the... Okay, so that's the story. Here's the important theological, universal theological truth that we get out of it. Here it is. Because of humanity's unwillingness to trust God, an infinite, insatiable discontent exists at the center of every human soul. I'm going to say that again for those who may be listening on our podcast uh, or on the internet. Because of humanity's unwillingness to trust God, an an infinite, insatiable discontent exists at the center of every human soul. Now, this is why the author of Numbers chapter 21 is showing us very much an incredible correlation. There's no disproportion here. What's happening in the Israelites' bodies is exactly what is happening in their souls. God is just showing them in a very vivid, very tangible way that the relatively curable and minor poison of these snakes in their their bodies was an exact mirror image of the greater poison of the serpent, of the first snake in their souls. You understand that? So like these snakes and then binding them, it's just, it's just like a... Um, <laughs> it's like the first flannel graph, except it's real. You know, there are these snakes that are just, you know, and it's just showing them what's going on in their souls in that moment. And as I said a moment ago, all of us have inherited this spiritual venom of discontent. And I mentioned last week that uh, the Bible has a word for this, and the word is thirst. The Bible has a word for this, and the word is thirst. This discontent, it's thirst. It's that feeling that you have and that you know and that I have and that I know that there's something else out there that will make me feel fulfilled, that will make me feel whole, that will make me feel happy. Maybe it's success. It's like if I could just be successful enough, that's thirst. When you feel that, it's thirst. Maybe, maybe it's someone's approval. If I could just get their approval, then I would feel whole. That's thirst. Uh, maybe it's a, a girl. Maybe it's a boy. Maybe it's a baby. Maybe it's a house, a new job, a new toy of some kind, or another pair of shoes. But you're like, then I'll feel fulfilled. Then I'll have what I need. Then I'll be happy. 
It's an inherited poison that's in our souls, and everyone has it. We have this thirst, this deep longing that there's something out there that I can't quite get that will make me feel more whole, more fulfilled. And here's the thing. If it's not spiritually dealt with, if there's not some supernatural intervention in your life, eventually you will find nothing is good enough to satisfy you. It will make you unhappy with anything and everything. Even, think about that, even the food of heaven, paradise itself, you will never be satisfied. And by the way, I want to say something. You You need to hear me on this, okay? This grows, this thirst... This discontent grows and develops and progresses faster if you're successful. Do you realize that? The more successful that you become, the faster you come to realize, I have a bottomless pit in my soul. There is a black hole that's in me. There is an infinite vacuum that's in me. It doesn't matter what I put in there. At first, I'm thrilled with it, and then I detest it, whatever it is. And unless there's some kind of intervention, we are on our way to being unhappy with anything and with everything. Nothing will ever be good enough. Not your career, not your wife, not your husband, not your kids, not your financial condition, not your vacations, nothing. Which I hope leaves you asking this question. Is there an antidote for that spiritual venom that's been passed down? To me? Is there a cure for it? I don't want to feel this all of my life. Is there some antidote? And the answer is yes, there is. But before we get to the antidote, before we get to the cure, I want you to see that the text actually points us to three prerequisites for healing this insatiable thirst that we all feel at the core of our souls. Like the cure's coming, the antidote is out there, and I'll tell you about that in a moment, but let me just tell you three things that have to happen before you can even get to the antidote. The first one is this. It's just the first prerequisite to healing is trouble. Trouble. Like the people of Israel didn't see their problem. They didn't see, they didn't understand that they had this spiritual venom inside of themselves of discontent, this thirst. They didn't see it until they got bitten. And that's often the case in life, isn't it? That you don't know you have a problem. You don't, maybe you're not even willing to admit that you have a problem until it comes up and it bites you in the Rear end, right? You just don't, you don't know. One day you look around and you realize that your pursuit of success has cost you everyone you love, your wife, your kids, all of those sacrificed at the altar of success. Or one day you realize that you can't pay the debts that you've been accumulating and the phone starts ringing incessantly from bill collectors who want paid and they want paid now. Or maybe a deep, dark depression overtakes you that you just can't explain. Some kind of trouble wakes you up. And it makes you realize that you have a problem. Look, you know, that's the way most of us learn, is by trouble. The second prerequisite for this getting this antidote is spiritual friendships. Spiritual friendships. In verse 5, you know, the people, they're speaking against Moses. And then in in verse 7, they're patching things up with Moses. They're saying, you know, we sinned against you. And then in verses 7 and 8, Moses, their friend, is actually praying for them so that they could be healed. You need to understand this. Let me give you this point. You need to understand this. 
You never have life-changing encounters with God without friends. You never have life-changing encounters with God without friends. You can tell me that you have the best devotional times. You can tell me that you get up at 4 o'clock every morning and pray for an hour. You can tell me that you have the best Bible study time, that you study from midnight till 4 a.m. every morning, and then you have your prayer time. I will tell you that without relationships, your spirituality is still very shallow and very immature. Because it's in the context of relationships that you learn to say things like, I'm sorry, I sinned against you. Or I forgive you. And it's in the context of relationships that you learn to accept forgiveness, by the way. And it's there in the context of relationships that you find the strength and the support that you need when trouble hits your life. If you keep your spiritual friendships repaired, those people can help you face anything. They can pray with you. They can support you. They can hold you up, whatever. But you've got to have spiritual friendships. Or you'll never have life-changing encounters with God. Here's the third prerequisite for getting the antidote, and it is this. It is that you've got to stop the blame-shifting Isn't it interesting? Now, let me say it again. You've got to stop the blame shifting. Isn't it interesting that when these people, when they come to Moses after they've been bitten, they say, we sinned against the Lord. Not, they don't say, we sinned, but this is ridiculous. They don't say that. They're not like, we sinned, but good. I mean, look, all we did was complain about the circumstances here in the desert and the food we're here eating. And look, God's killing us. This is wrong. This is disproportionate. No, none of that. None of that. They know that their problems are their own fault. They are self-induced. And so there is no blame shifting from these people. They just say, we sinned. And you need to know this, that spiritual healing starts when the blame shifting stops and not until then. You can't get the ad- antidote until you stop the blame shifting. Okay, fine. Those are, you're, you're like, okay, fine. Those are the prerequis- prerequisites. But, but, but what's the antidote? What's the cure? And this is where this passage gets really odd and very counterintuitive. Of all the things that God could possibly tell Moses to do to bring healing, this takes the cake. He says... Create a huge image of the very thing that's killing everybody. A huge bronze serpent. Put it up on a pole and then have them come and look at it and they'll be healed. Now that's odd. And it's very counterintuitive. And all kinds of reasons why that's so counterintuitive. Psychologically, who wants to go look at an image of the very thing that's killing them? And that's weird. Theologically, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive because the serpent in Israel, because, of the, because they knew the story of Adam and Eve, the serpent in Israel represented evil. I mean, like they were not allowed to, they were not allowed to eat serpents. They were, I mean, there are all sorts of things because it represented evil. Why would, here's the question, why would looking at evil heal you? Isn't that odd? Isn't that counterintuitive? Why in the world would that heal anybody? They probably never figured out. Moses probably never figured out the answer to that question. But we can. We can. Because centuries later, Jesus Christ referred to this very instant, this very passage, 
in a conversation with a man whose name is Nicodemus. And he says this. It's in John chapter 3, verse 15. Don't turn there. We'll put it up here on the screen. It says this. Just as Moses, this is Jesus talking. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, that was one of Jesus' favorite um, titles for himself. He wanted, to, he, wanted to under, he wanted people to understand that he identified with humanity. He understood our weaknesses. So he called himself often the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. Jesus was saying in that passage in John 3 that the serpent on that pole pointed to him, Jesus. Wait, now wait a minute, you say. The, the bronze serpent represented the spiritual venom that Satan passed into Adam and Eve. So how could it be that it's pointing to Jesus? Well, the answer is in a little verse Elsewhere in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he's speaking of Jesus, and he said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that God made Jesus to be sinful. That's because on the, and we know that, because on the cross, Jesus didn't become hateful or cruel. In fact, Till his very last breath, Jesus was asking God to forgive the people who were killing him. No. What it means is that on the cross, Jesus became sin. In other words, he became legally the serpent, evil, sin. He got what the serpent deserved. He got what evil and sin deserved. Now watch this. This is very interesting, okay? On the cross, moments before Jesus died, there is this thing that happens that only the gospel writer John records. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And just before he dies, it's like just moments before he dies, Jesus says, get this, I am thirsty. The significance of that is that's more than just a declaration of physical thirst. What Jesus is saying is that because he became sin, because he became evil, because he became the serpent on the cross, he had, he felt the infinite discontent, the dissatisfaction, the thirst, the venom that the serpent had given to Adam and Eve and to every one of us, the poison, he felt it. And he experienced it so that we could be healed. He had to be lifted up on that cross so that we could be healed. Jesus took the thirst so that we could be cured of our thirst. And here again, in the story of the Exodus, you get the consistency of the Bible, the supremacy of Christ, and the beauty of the gospel, without a doubt, in the very last place that you would ever expect to find it. But there is, there, there is just one more thing that I want you to see as we wrap up this series, okay? I want you to notice again, if you, if you have your 
Bible in front of you, or we'll put it up on the screen. I want you to notice again, verse 8 of Numbers chapter 21. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can, and I emphasize the words, look at it and live. I want to speak to two different groups of people as we close. First, for those of you who are here this morning who perhaps sense your need for the cure that only Jesus offers, but you, you're not sure still how to get it, you, how to access that cure. And you think, well, okay, I need to clean up my life before I can ever get it. Because look, you know, I mean, Jesus wouldn't want me as I am. I'm such a mess. I've sinned so much. I've broken so many things, whatever. Um, would you notice that Moses says the way to get the cure is to look? Just to look. He doesn't say, by the way, nor did Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 15. He doesn't say, well, you have to go climb the pole to the snake. And then everybody runs and they go climb the pole. You know, he, doesn't, he doesn't say climb the pole. He also doesn't say, well, you need to get over there and you need to go touch that snake. He, he didn't say any of that. All Moses said, all Jesus said was, was look. And here's the point. If you're here this morning and you've never, you've never known how to access the antidote that is in Jesus, you need to know this. Your thirst is cured by looking rather than doing. Like the message of the Bible from the beginning to the end is that. There's nothing you can do except look. You can't do enough good stuff. You can't clean up your life enough. You can't be a good enough person. None of that's going to cure you. You just have to look. Jesus used the word believe. Believe in him. It's the first word on our banners around the room, believe. You've got to believe that Jesus, not believe in anything. You're going to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that he was the antidote. He was the cure for your sins. He is the way to be healed. Your thirst is cured by looking rather than doing. Some of you hope to be cured by your own doing. You're gonna, you you want to reform your life, but that's not what this text says. It says, look and you will live. The other group of people that I want to talk to this morning are the people who have, you have looked and you have been Jesus, you've been born again. That's the language that Jesus uses in John chapter 3. You've been saved. You know that Jesus is the cure for your thirst. But you know as well as I do, every one of them, you know this as well as I do, that you still struggle with this thirst to some extent. It comes back from time to time, doesn't it? You let things deflate you and you let things define you and then you start to thirst again and then you become driven by that discontent to find something that will slake your thirst and it gets you in trouble every time. Would you remember the prerequisites for healing? When you get to that place, here are the prerequisites again. Trouble, friends, repentance. Stop the blame shifting. Repentance. And then, You look again at him. You look again at him. Jesus is the cure for your thirst. And he's the cure again and again and again and again and again. Ad nauseum for the rest of your life. 
He's always the cure for your thirst. Look to him and be healed in every desert you find yourself in. There's the gospel in the last place that you would ever expect to find it. Would you bow your heads with me? And let's close in prayer here. Lord Jesus, I feel very certain that there are people here this morning who have all their life, they have thought, well, I've got to clean up my life. And maybe they've even, maybe even they think that their life is, is worthy of you. And because of their self-righteousness, they look at all the good things that they do and they think, well, you know, I don't need a, I don't need a cure. I'm, I'm cured. Of course, Jesus would, of course, Jesus would want me. Or would you bring to them a sense of conviction that even their best righteousness, even their best deeds are filthy rags before you. Their best prayers, their best good deeds, their best generosity, all of that is filthy deeds, is filthy rags before you. And Lord, for those that are here this morning that may be weighed down by their sin in some way, shape, or form, and they think, well, I've got to clean my life up before I could ever have a relationship with Jesus. Lord, would you convict them this morning? No, that's not the case. All they have to do is believe that you died on the cross for their sins and that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one shall pass to the Father but through you. And Lord, would you bring them to a moment, a point of decision, where maybe even today as they sit in their seats that they would say, yes, I'm looking, I believe, Lord Jesus. For the first time in my life, I believe. And Lord, would you just invade their souls with your Holy Spirit and... uh, begin the process of transformation in their lives. Or for those that are here this morning that have at some point in their life, they have believed and they, they have trusted. And yet, I know I feel it in my life that that thirst, it comes back and, and I start to think that there are other things that define me. Lord, for all of us, there is that. Lord, would you keep us looking at you and believing? you are the one who is the solution to our thirst. There's nothing else out there that's going to satisfy us. Only you, Lord Jesus. Would you give us that sense of conviction? Would you just keep us looking at you? That we would fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.